0: My name's Teal. I am married to Jeff, that guy right there. This is actually such a gift for us to kind of be tag teaming tonight. It's um, the thing the Lord, it's a manifestation of um, just God's mercy to us in our marriage of being, um, yeah, we love college students, we love Jesus. and I, Jeff and I got married in September, and so I've been here since then, but before that I was doing something very similar to what the staff here at Campus House do all the time in the Boston area. Um, so it's been an adjustment, cultural adjustment, as you might imagine. Um, not, not as much of a weather adjustment as it turns out. Spring break. Welcome back. Are people excited or not? not so much? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> to be here, but not so much to be there tomorrow morning? (laughs) Okay, that's fair. That's so fair. Oh, man. Um, We're going to be, it's Lent still, we're going to be sort of sneak previewing the resurrection. Um, The excitement of the resurrection, and talking about it, tends to sort of be confined to an Easter sermon. And, um, Rob asked me if I would speak um, in light of the series that's going to be from now through Easter um, on the story of Mary Magdalene and her um, experience with Jesus. And, and really the, the big story um, of Mary Magdalene is after um, the resurrection or around the resurrection. So I'm excited to kind of share the good news even as we anticipate um, all of the events of Easter um, and Holy Week. So uh, pray with me, and we'll give moving. God, you are here. You are here. It's so clear. Um, and so, Lord, we want to tune in to you. Uh, I desire to speak your words and not mine. And, um, God, I thank you uh, that we get to be in your word, that we get to celebrate the truth. Um, And, Lord, thank you that you don't come in abstraction, but you come through people, and you come to people. And the way that you came to Mary um, in her life, and specifically um, on that day, is just a gift to your people. It's a gift to us. And so, Lord, thank you for doing that. Thank you for um, the, the gospel writers recording that Um, lord would you apply it and and sort of dig it down deep in us tonight in our time together lord we love you and we invite you here in jesus name amen so we're going to be in john 20 if you want to turn there if you've got a bible um we're going to be kind of like i'm so not great at trying to pare down passages i always kind of actually like soup them up um you'll see. I hope so. Um, So I'm going to read actually the whole, uh, the first 18 verses, and we're going to kind of jump back and forth. Mary Magdalene is one of those people, we can sort of cover all that scripture has to say about her um, today, and we're going to do that. Um, And yeah, beginning with John 20. So, John writes, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to, that, to him, So we do, we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So another gospel writer, actually, Joe, if you can move me forward. Yeah, Luke, right, gives it an interesting and sort of compatible but different account, which is often true of the gospel writers, and in Luke twenty-three, we get some kind of fill-in-the-gaps history. So before we go back to John, if you're if you're in a paper Bible, kind of keep your keep your finger there. But in Luke twenty-three, we get the beginning with verse fifty the story of okay, Jesus has been crucified, and they're asking what to do with his body. Now they're Was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, meaning the crucifixion, uh, despite the fact that he had some power, right? Um, And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it and wrapped it in a linen shroud, so sort of what ends up being on the ground when, when John and Peter show up. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So they are with him and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So the women have come, they know where the tomb is, and they, it's, they're going to prepare the body, right? And so they, um, the next day is the Sabbath, so they don't go, right? And then Luke 24 begins, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. So they go back, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men so go head back we're going to head back to John, right John 20 and pick up where we left off. Um, so Peter, we've got sort of the same situation again, right Peter is at the end of both of those passages Peter and or Peter and John um, I mean certainly Peter and John, but we only know that it's Peter in in that Luke passage head back home, which I think is interesting okay uh, And in 11, but Mary stood. We're going to pause there for a second. What a weekend it had been, right? What a life Mary had had and what a weekend she had just experienced. We get very little of the history of Mary Magdalene and much of what we think of as history, like if you have, if you've seen much art um, related to Mary Magdalene, if you heaven forbid, have, like, encountered the Da Vinci Code or whatever that was. Um, yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Um, but, but really, church history and lore have sort of gotten tied together for Mary. And we do know some things. She was likely single because she was free to follow Jesus. Um, most, probably most of those women are widowed um, or have never been married. Um, and so she's compelled to follow in light of this rescue that she's experienced at the hands of Jesus. So the little we know about Mary's story before the scenes of the crucifixion and resurrection is that she um, was hounded by demons. So Luke, in Luke 8, um, we find out that Mary actually had been um, afflicted with seven demons. So that seven's an interesting number because it could have been like seven one two three four five six seven it could also seven in hebrew has sort of a connotation of wholeness like think seven days of the week seven's like a special number in hebrew um and so whatever whichever of those it was the sense is that mary was probably incapacitated in some significant way Um, And so, for sure, she was traumatized. She walked around with a significant amount of trauma. And then she meets Jesus, and he frees her. The Luke 8 passage says, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Huzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them, meaning probably the disciples or at the very least Jesus, out of their means, which mean that whatever your understanding of women and financial provision, they were providing, right? They had money. Um, so Mary has this past, but she, she also has a present. She's following Jesus. She's walking around with him and, and in a group of women who are in, doing very practical service in um, and for the disciples and specifically for Jesus. But Mary's past is traumatic and the lore around Mary is probably also in part due to where she's from. So she's from a town called Magdala, And it was a pretty prosperous fishing town, but it kind of had a reputation like, think like the Vegas of its day, right? Lots of money, but also some kind of sticky things. But, I mean, there are, like, 628 Marys in the Bible, practically, so it's difficult for us to sort of, like, separate, like, who actually Mary is, and that mix-up is totally understandable. So I'm going to tell you who Mary is not. She's not the mother of Jesus. This is not that Mary. She is not Mary of Bethany, who is Lazarus' sister, if you remember this, and who sits at Jesus' feet, right, Mary and Martha. She's not that Mary. Um, She's also not the Mary who's the mother of James and Joseph, who also gets some shout-outs. It's like everyone standing around is named Mary in the Bible. She's also not, probably not, the sinful woman of Luke 7. So historically, she's gotten attributed with the reputation of the story that comes right before the first time she's mentioned. And now scholars say, actually, it probably has nothing to do with her. And why do we spend so much time? Partly because some of us really are nerding out about things like this, or just get confused. But also because I think it's important to note that Mary sort of has a, a bad reputation. And whether she had a bad reputation there because of the town she was from, or she has a bad reputation now. I just, that ministers to me. I think, she's probably not the prostitute of Luke 7, but she could have been. Like, she could have still witnessed to the resurrection. I read one scholar who said, I kind of wish she was. Because no matter what, Mary, as the first witness to the resurrection, one author calls her the apostle to the apostles, which we'll see in a second. She's the one who tells them the most important news that, that accounts for the entire rest of the New Testament. Right? She, she's an unreliable witness. Women could, were unreliable witnesses in court in that day. It was a strange choice. And every single gospel writer acknowledges she's the first one. Or among the first. So Mary stands when the disciples go home. I think in this story about <laughs> I grew up in a church, my dad was a pastor, is a pastor, and I grew up in a church and we had like church ladies. So if you grew up in church, you might know what I'm talking about. These women are, like, in the kitchen every time you need something. You are like, I know. So, like, Pam and Betty and Gloria, they were just crushing it in the kitchen. And you just count on them. You're like, yep. And, and like, there was a funeral, and they were there. And there was, like, the kids' programs that people, like, actively tried to think of reasons that they couldn't be at church on Wednesday night. Like, sorry. You know, and they're there just busting out those butter cookies, you know, that are like 99 cents for like 200 or whatever. But I always thought, like, if something happened, and we do know that the church of God is not the building. It's not the church building, right? It's the people of God. But if Jesus showed up in an unusual way, if the spirit fell in an unusual way on that church building, you better believe that those women would be there and they would be the first ones. And their faithfulness would make everyone go, like, praise God he came to you first. Yes, please. Like, (laughs) yes, please. Because faith stands and it keeps standing. It keeps showing up showing up is just vastly underrated. So is standing, actually. Um, several years ago, I was working in an office, and I walked by the, like, front office part, and one of the guys who was super quiet and kind of mysterious walked by, and all of a sudden, his normal desk had been replaced by a standing desk, right? And I was like, hey, what, what's happening? And he, he had, like, done all this research, and then he gave me, like, a 40-minute speech on why it's better to stand than sit, and I, like, trudge back to my sitting desk with my sitting chair. But uh, this woman, <laughs> who's a, a reporter on exercise research for the New York Times, wrote this book, and she, she sort of condensed, she read all these health studies, and she condensed it down to, like, here are the, like, real takeaways. Like, if you want to be a healthy person, here are some critical takeaways. And she writes that new science shows very persuasively that standing up about every 20 minutes, even for only a minute or two, reduces your risk of developing diabetes and heart disease. We should all stand for this, actually, right now. No, I'm serious. Stand up. (laughs) Yes, well done. Listen, I'm going to tell you more. Don't you worry. By standing up, you cause the big muscles in your legs and back to contract which leads to an increase in certain enzymes that break up fat in the bloodstream, praise God. You don't have to jog in place or do jumping jacks, just stand. I know, right? A very pleasant additional benefit is that standing up every 20 to 30 minutes also seems to prompt the body to burn calories, so you don't gain as much weight from sitting at the office most of the day. If you can stand up every 20 minutes, even if you do nothing else, you change how your body responds physiologically. Amen. You can sit down. Well done. (laughs) Our bodies respond that way, I think, because standing rightly is actually active. It's not passive, right? It's not you laying on your couch. Like, there is an engagement of muscles, whether we realize it or not. Standing is underrated. I am so convinced. Um, It just takes work. Good standing. Be a good stander. In the 1960s, um, during the Civil Rights Movement, there was a significant, there were actually things called um, sit-ins. I'm sure you have heard of this, right? That essentially um, those who were actively pursuing and campaigning for um, just a change in the sort of racial inequality that had embedded itself in the laws of our country within the nonviolent movement, right, that MLK and others were leading, there was this practice of going to segregated, particularly like restaurants, right? And but also happened on buses. There would be this violation of those unjust laws. But in order to actually sit in a place you weren't supposed to be sitting, according to the law, and that you were not desired to be sitting, there would be a training, right? That nonviolent practices actually required a lot of training because everything in us, everything in those who were sitting, right, was geared towards rising up, right? Responding in a, in a violent way, right? Right? Responding not passively, but, but actively and aggressively. It's hard work to stand firm in an evil day. Joe, can you go to the next slide? Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, perfect. That essentially people would practice. So... This woman is putting cigarette smoke on another woman, and the idea was, like, not to react, that you had to practice to stand firm, to hold fast to the good. Can you go to the next one, Joe? And then, of course, they got more than fair opportunity to practice in real time, right? When, when all this they had practiced for um, happened and more people throwing food on them, people taunting and hitting and kicking, and people were injured. And I mean, it was, it was, I mean, look into it, right, if you don't know the history here, but it is a powerful and sobering thing to have to train yourself for. Like faith among other things, trains itself to stand firm in an evil day. Paul knows it because he writes to the Ephesians and he kind of closes his um, book on with that kind of famous passage, if you've read it, on the armor of God. And it sounds like we think, okay, armor means you're like going out and engaging. And engagement sounds like it sounds like movement towards something. But Paul says in Ephesians 6, 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Tell that to Mary who had just watched the man that she loved, that delivered her from the demonic, which she certainly knew was powerful, succumb to death. Can you imagine? Yes, when we talk about the disciples, we talk so much, and rightly so, about the expectations of a kingdom, and and how Here were people waiting for a kingdom and it came in a different way. And while that is absolutely true and a really important part of what happened at Holy Week, we also have to remember these are people who are watching someone they love die an excruciating death, which is traumatizing. Death is not pretty. It's not pretty in like the best of circumstances and these are the worst of circumstances. They're also watching torture. Joe, can you back me up? Back up. Yep. Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 19. The centurion in Matthew and Mark acknowledges that surely this was the Son of God dying. And 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and mother of sons of the sons of Zebedee. Mark 15, 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. John 19, so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The disciples were gone, most of them, John being the exception apparently. They had fled. They were fearful. Jesus had asked them, pray so that you can withstand temptation. It turns out the temptation all Jesus was asking was for them to stay. And the women stayed. Ephesians 6, again, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. In the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. But Mary doesn't just stand. Keep yep. She stands weeping. It's not a stoic standing. It's an acknowledgement of the trauma and the heartbreak. Mary's faith is a weeping faith. She's full of grief. But she's present. She's there. She's standing. Grieving is an incredibly brave act because it involves staring the truth in the face, staring the trauma in the face. I so appreciated Rick's sermon several times. I guess a month and a half ago on grieving. I think it's one of the most valuable things for you to hear as a college student because it, it very rarely has been modeled well, um, in my years of ministering to college students, and more importantly in my own experience. I just did not know how important grieving is. Mary understands the tragedy. It's incredibly brave. But fear runs, and although I am a woman like Mary, I can much more easily identify with Peter, who just gets out of dodge. It's awkward; he doesn't want to watch the torturous scene in front of him. And in contrasting fear and faith, there's so many directions we could go. But I want us to just name a few things um, here, and this is not for the sake of condemnation. It's for the sake of identification and invitation. So. If, As we talk about this, you feel like, oh gosh, I operate so much more in fear than in faith. I look so much more like Peter at the crucifixion than I look like Mary. Welcome, welcome. The spirit is at work and we'll get there, but fear runs away, right? While faith stands. Fear is insecure and faith looks outside of herself, himself, itself, right? We're talking also, I want us to, talk not only about individuals with fear and faith, but also um, cultures of fear versus cultures of faith, right? That idea that um, not that faith is just like, faith is not a misplaced and strange sort of confidence in yourself, right? In contrast to insecurity. Rather, it says something else is going on here. There's a bigger story here. I actually think that's why Mary is free to grieve, She doesn't have to figure it all out right then, right? She's just looking at the circumstances and grieving. Fear champions a manufactured reality. Having to tell yourself a story that makes sense. Oh, man. That is so tempting, isn't it? Don't we, like, want everything to make sense, like, yesterday? Like, it's okay, guys. Don't worry. Like, you're sharing bad news, and you're like, I've already got this figured out, so let me tell you why this isn't actually bad news, so you don't look at me like that, and everybody's okay here. And we all know sort of probably somewhere deep inside that's not true, but it's fine, it's fine, everything's fine, right? Faith looks squarely at the circumstances and responds. Clearly, I left a word out. I'm not sure what I was gonna say, but re- responds in hope, that's what I was gonna say. Oh man, I did this early, early in the morning. Responds in hope, right? Um, again, not needing to have all the answers, but looking forward. Uh oh, go back, Joe. Um, fear is self protective. I think this is such a, a key one, it's institutionally protective. I think it's been so fascinating in the midst of the Me Too stuff of, of what I both hail as a, a welcome change in a culture and also an interesting dynamic. I think there are a lot of pieces. We don't have time to get into all that right now. But I think what's fascinating to watch is when there has been accusation or particularly around the stuff with Larry Nassar um, and USA Gymnastics, right? That what happens in a culture of fear is this desire to protect the institution, right? Um, The protection of the powerful, fear-based, right? Where faith protects others and is selfless and particularly protects the marginalized, right? Protects those who are in greatest need of protection. Fear does not love questions, right? Because insecurity, right? Faith invites questions. Faith is not standing on solid ground all the time. It's knowing that there's solid ground to stand on. It's looking outside. We talk about faith sometimes as if it's sort of this internal kind of like happy confidence. If you're interested in this question, Leslie Newbegin wrote a book called Proper Confidence. I know Rick loves it. I I recommend it all the time. I, I think it's a fabulous reminder of some of these things, particularly if doubt is an issue, which it is for many of us, I'm sure. So faith stands, but faith also rises. And this is where I want us to kind of plant our feet tonight in great hope and excitement. Resurrection faith is essential to the affirmation of the faith that stands. Um, if Jeff and I saw A Rink on Time. I'm like a massive Madeline Lingle fan, and we went and saw it yesterday. And at one point, in, um, towards the end, of the movie, they're in sort of this, this is gonna be tricky to explain, but they're, they're sort of in this white room, and uh, Meg, who's the main character, is given these glasses that allow her to see kind of like what's underneath. And she puts these glasses on, and she begins to realize, although it looks like, like it's just a square white box, that there's actually this an sort of blueprint style. Drawing underneath, and and she begins to walk on steps that look like they're not there, and and yet they they hold her weight, right? And and I love that because I think it's this reminder that like faith taps into a framework that we can't always see. If you're a Harry Potter fan, which I am, you um, know that that in Harry Potter, so they as they kind of get to Hogwarts, they think that these chariots that they ride in or coaches are, are just like pulled by nothing. They're sort of like magicked. Um, well, it turns out they're actually, in book five, I think, um, Harry realizes, oh my goodness, these are pulled by like these dragons with like wings. And he thinks like, what happened? Oh my goodness. And But then it seems like not everyone can see them. And as it turns out, only those who have seen death can see these beings. They're called right? And and there's a sense of having seen this very difficult thing, right? Having experienced some kind of trauma actually taps you into a different way of viewing the universe. I think the same is true of faith, that prior to Jesus's resurrection, there are hints of resurrection faith, and then, when Jesus' resurrection happens, all the pieces come together. The, the steps become visible. If you'll take me back, Joe, to we're going to pop back into John, we're going to pick up where I left off in John 11. John 20, verse 11, sorry. So Mary's standing. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Whom are you seeking? Woman at that point was, we read that, it sounds kind of rude. It actually was kind of like, like ma'am is probably the best way of describing it. Supposing him, Jesus, to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, she knows immediately. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, an apostle to the apostles, and that he had said these things to her. I love the final words of Mary's account in John. Mary went, right? Right? and said, I have seen the Lord. He had called her by name and, and for whatever reason says there's more to come. The ascension is coming, right? Um, so for now, this isn't it, but this is the important part of now. Ascension is the completion of resurrection, but resurrection is the affirmation and end point of true faith. Christian faith is not Christian faith without resurrection. Period. Not for you. Not any less for me than for Mary. Not any less for you than for Mary. Saving faith is resurrection-shaped. But what about the people before Jesus? Great question. I'm glad you asked. In Romans 4... Paul's writing to a bunch of people in Romans that sort of stand on either side of the Jew-Gentile thing, right? Bunch of people who know their Old Testament, rock stars, Gentiles not so much, they've got like shadier past, right? Pagans, they're probably cooler, but then like the Jew, right? Like, and so Paul's trying to bring them together and say actually it's the same. Like same faith, same history. And In Romans 4, talking about that faith. I'm not going to turn around and read. I'm actually going to. Yeah, that's right. In Romans 4, starting with verse 16. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, not only the Jewish person, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That sounds like duh to us. It did not sound like duh to them. The Jews are going, no, Abraham is not your father. And the Gentiles are going, I don't even know who that is. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. The presence of the God in whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? Who gives life to the dead? In hope, Abraham believed against hope. Hmm. Resurrection faith is hope against hope. It seems insane. When I was um, ministering to students at Harvard, the the, we had a very tragic and difficult death of a student. And one of my other students was at the hospital, standing over the bedside of this dear friend of his. And he, t- he told us later, he told me later, I know it was so stupid, but I put my hands on him and I prayed that God would raise him up. I said, Jacob, that's not stupid. That's the end point. And whether or not God raises him now, he will raise him. Saving faith is always resurrection shape. Paul says, without the resurrection, what are you even doing here? Because your life is probably going to suck more than other people's. It's going to be harder. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, in case you missed it. Or when he considered the barrenness, actually says the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham's resurrection faith pointed to Jesus. It pointed to a resurrection True saving faith has always been resurrection shaped. One of my favorite passages in the resurrection story is in Matthew 27. I think I have it in there. If not, I'll read it for you. And behold, the, this is after Jesus' death. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, after their resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Like your grandma is walking around. You're like, what are you doing here? Like there is a, an actual resurrection that attaches to Jesus's resurrection in that day. I, th- I think it was, If Jesus was the first fruit, this is like first fruits. Like, hey guys, remember, like all of this is coming. Just dead people, tombs opening all over the place. It's amazing. Not to belabor a point, but I totally will. Hebrews 11, what happened to those who died before Jesus? I can't do the whole thing, but I'm going to hit the highlights. Um, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen, for by the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, like those steps that are there, but you can't see them but they can bear your weight. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. And over and over again in Hebrews 11, we get stories of those who came before Noah, being warned concerning events as yet unseen, right, constructs an ark, oh my goodness, so many things, but let me skip again to Abraham in seventeen by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he had received the promise was an act of, in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named he this was the hope of he, he thought this was the whole plan of God. Surely Mary thought the same thing. This has to be the plan, right? Jesus is the one. He delivered me. But it all falls apart that weekend. I wonder if she just cried from sheer exhaustion and like, I mean, just trauma, Right? He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did raise him back. The child of the promise has hints of resurrection all around him. So much resurrection. True faith is always resurrection-shaped. Our hope is not, friends, that we will disembodied end up in heaven that is not true Christian hope our hope is resurrected bodies new heavens, new earth new creation Jesus is the first one and then us be encouraged and if this is not too big for him how much more so the dead places in us Around us. Hope against hope. But some of you just need to hear that sometimes you just need to stand. Sometimes you need to stand and weep. But let's do it in the shadow and hope of resurrection. May you pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you that we await what has already been secured, that the dead in Christ will rise. I thank you for Mary. Can't wait to meet her.